Welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable. All right, welcome everyone to the August 2023 edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Another special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, for making it possible for us to be here together. And I'm Dr. Remley Crow. Today I'm joined by Dr. Tony Fernandez, Dave Page, Jeff Rollman, and Dr. Bill Toon. Uh, we have a really exciting article that we'll be reviewing. It is called Performance of Pre-Hospital Use of Chest Pain Risk Stratification Tools, also known as the Rescue Study. This was hot off the press in pre-hospital emergency care. And as always, our discussion today will be paired with an article written by our very own columnist, Dr. Tony Fernandez and Michael Caduce in EMS World. It's called Journal Watch. Make sure you check it out. It is at emsworld.com under the category of education and training. And I want to thank all you participants who are here listening live with us today. Uh, as a reminder, you can use the Q&A feature to ask questions and we'll bring them into the discussion as we go. Tony also just dropped a link into the article, which there is a free version of it available through PubMed if you want to follow along with us. And so we encourage your questions and comments as we go. This will be a fun discussion. I'll invite all of our panelists to come join us and we'll just kick it off and, and start off with, you know, why does the study matter? What's it about before we dive into some methods? And then of course we'll hit those results. So first of all, this study was looking at risk stratification scores for the pre-hospital setting for patients with suspected acute coronary syndrome and potential pulmonary embolism. We know from all of our EMS education that ACS or acute coronary syndrome and pulmonary embolism are extremely time-sensitive conditions, and EMS early identification has the possibility of making a big difference, especially when it comes to destination decisions. EMS often makes that decision of do I need to bypass one hospital to get to another hospital, depending on what care I think this patient is going to need? Uh, and in the hospital setting, there's lots of these different scores, uh, but most of them have not been tested or at least not tested very broadly in the pre-hospital environment. And so that's what these authors set out to do. They took four well-known in-hospital scores and applied them in a prospective manner to pre-hospital data. And so we'll dive right into that. Any other thoughts on the background here, Tony or Dave, before I hop us into methods? No, I think that it's this is a really interesting study because <clears throat> there are a lot of things that that work in the emergency department that we think that we can, you know, just take copy and paste and use them pre-hospitally. And um, I like when we can we're putting a little science behind that decision rather than just moving straight to using everything that works in the emergency department into EMS. And I think this will have uh, some interesting this this will lead to some interesting discussions in that regard. That's an important concept. And we've seen this with stroke screening instruments a lot, that they might show really good predictive ability in an in-hospital environment or within a stroke trial. But then when we take it out to pre-hospital environment, the performance is very different. 
I I love this because I it's easy when you've got a smoking gun, you know, the STEMI, and you have a proven algorithm that and a computer and a EKG tells you this patient is having a STEMI. This is an emergency. But the 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 place that I love to live is in that critical thinking moment about are you sick or not sick? Is this patient really going to be critical or not? Are they really having the big one or not? And without any specific uh, biomarker tools, et cetera, that may come in the future, this is uh, your gut reaction time. And if it smells like it and it tastes like it and you think really, oh, this is going to be the one, then you're taking a huge risk, uh, whether it's, you know, transporting lights and siren, which we know doesn't really matter much, but still is done routinely if you really think that this patient needs to be taken emergently, or you're simply putting your reputation on the line and calling a a, a, a more serious patient, somebody who maybe wasn't that serious. So uh, arrival into the emergency department confidently feeling like this, this patient meets criteria for high risk or not, or or for really having an MI is helpful and uh, implementing a tool because we know, for example, with GCS, uh, we we have a a ton of scales that have been uh, implemented poorly uh, uh, and 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 at times incorrectly and inaccurately. So if we can better identify these, then we could, uh, you know, really make a difference. I, I loved um, Malcolm Gladwell in his book Blink talks about this moment at Cook uh, County uh, General Hospital where uh, physicians were asked to think, okay, is this patient going to be admitted uh, for chest pain or not? Just based on their, you know, high speed reasoning versus some, you know, test result. And uh, this is that moment where we're where we're using science to advance EMS. We're we're really trying to test a theory. So I can't wait to, until we uh, dive into this. This is great. I, I agree that this is great, and you know it talks in the background a little bit about oh the paramedic gestalt, and that's what we usually rely on is just our own feelings and our, our clinical judgment. But having a tool that's objective. Is really important. And when we talk about things like the NEMSP scoping review, where we see disparities in care, having an objective measure that works well across populations can be a really big help for closing those gaps in health equity. Uh, so I'm excited to dive in. But first, perhaps, Tony, you could tell us a little bit about when and where the study took place. Yeah, no, absolutely. So this was this was a really interesting study. This was a, a, the, the prospective observational cohort study. Um, and they looked at four. We talked. We talked about these risk stratification tools. They looked at four specific risk stratification tools. They looked at the uh, here, and we'll go through these in in, uh, in some detail in a minute. But just overall, uh, they looked at the here. They looked at the EDACS score. They looked at an RGS and a PERC assessment. Um, and they did this in two EMS agencies. So uh, they looked at one rather large agency in um and then all of this was done in in North Carolina the larger agency was in Cumberland County EMS and they complete about 75,000 uh calls per year and they have a population of about 330 
1,000 uh, people. And they looked at Hope County EMS, which they respond to about 14,000 calls a year. And they had a population of about 55,000 people annually. Uh, the study took place from April of 2018 to January of 2019. And in that time, they trained 166 paramedics to calculate each of these risk stratification scores. Now, um, that is that is quite a lot of training. They actually published a uh, a separate paper just looking at the training and 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 how uh, these paramedics were able to to utilize these scores. So, um, I think let's uh, let's dive in and let's let's take a look at some of the scores that were actually uh, used and calculated by our by our paramedics in the study. Alrighty. So here we go. First up, heart minus the T. Yeah. So first, we're going to talk about the 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 heart minus the T or the HERE score, right? And you'll see all of these are the the categories of subcategories of this score. Um, in the in the only difference is troponin uh, was not used in the EMS environment for this for this study. So that's why it is a HERE and not a heart score. Um, but you'll see the first uh, the H stands for history, and that's um, you have different points. All of these scores are kind of run like golf scores where the lower, the better, right? Um, so we'll have, you can see highly suspicious uh, history, moderately suspicious, and you get points for each one, as well as uh, this, your ECGs, um, you get, and all of these are two points, one point or zero. Uh, older folks greater than or equal to 65 get two points, uh, while 45 to 65 get one, and then under 45 is zero. And then you have your risk factors here. You can see the list of risk factors on the bottom of this chart. Um, and if you have three or more, that's where you get your two points. One or two, you'd get one point. And if you have no risk factors, you get zero points. And again, the troponin was removed from this assessment. And then you can see on the bottom of this chart how that was judged. So you want a zero to three. And in, again, these were validated in the emergency department. So you can see that zero to three, that leads you to uh, a disposition of discharge home. Um, whereas the four to six, you want you might want to admit for a clinical observation. And again, these are ED scores. Um, and seven to 10, that's when you're going to do some uh, invasive strategies. So that was the first score that the medics learned to use in the emergency uh, in the pre-hospital environment that was derived from the emergency department. Now you'll see the uh, EDACS or the ED assessment of chest pain score. And you can see here they get a different score for every uh, subcategory of age. So they start from 18 to 45 and they go all the way up to greater than 86. And you'll get anywhere from a two to 20 points uh, added to your score there. Males, in this score, uh, they get an extra six points. Uh, again, these are golf scores, so that's not that's that is a that's not really helpful um, to be male in this category. Uh, Eighteen to fifty year olds, uh, they get four points if they have these known risk factors. And then you have your signs and symptoms of uh, that are pretty synonymous with with chest pain or or some cardiac symptoms. Um, you have these signs and symptoms that include diaphoresis, radiating pain to the arms and shoulders. Uh, pain occurring or worsening on inspiration, and uh, if the pain is reproduced. And again, low scores are lower risk, high scores. It's interesting that they don't call them high risk, but they just call them not low risk so, uh, for the EDACS. And that cutoff is 16. 
Yeah, and I think it's worth noting that on the signs and symptoms, there's two scores that actually deduct points, and that's when these conditions of pain occurring or worsening on, on inspiration or being reproduced by palpation, meaning that the cause is probably not cardiac. So I, I think it's interesting how most of the scores just get just give positive scores, but there's two signs and symptoms here that are predictive of not having uh, an acute coronary syndrome event. Yeah, that's a really good point, and um, particularly important when for these medics when they're learning a new score to know when to add and when to subtract. So those were our chest pains. Yeah. And then they had two scores specifically looking uh, for PE. Uh, first one was the revised uh, Geneva score for uh, pulmonary embolism. And again, uh, lower scores are better. And you they, you get some scores that are if you're older or greater than 65 years old. Um, if you have a previous history, you get some, um, if you have active cancer, or um, your heart rate scores and your uh, pain in your legs. So those are, that's the, that's one of the scores we use for PE. And then the second score that we use for PE is the PERC assessment. And this is an interesting one in that if you get any, if you meet any of these criteria, um, you will, you actually, any one of the criteria will put you in the the at-risk category. So um, they can go anywhere from age greater than 50 at this point, um, heart rate greater than 100, and you talk about your O2 sats, uh, leg swelling, and um, estrogen use and the like. So again, here you don't, this is not, lower score is better, but you, you, you want your score, um, to to not to, you don't want to have a one on any of these categories here. Yeah, I think it was important that we got to see all of these different scores. The one thing that sticks out to me is that all of these are things that are either readily obtainable or knowable in the pre-hospital setting, which is very important. We try to translate a score that's used primarily in hospital to the pre-hospital environment. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you'll see some this uh, some difficulties with with actually using some of these, particularly with the heart score. Right, it's 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 not uh, a usual thing to get your opponents in the in the out of hospital environment. So uh, sometimes you got to make adjustments. Can I also say? Um, <clears throat> uh, so as I was reading this, I was having trouble with the positive and the negative, like what's good and what's bad, right? Um, and I'm sorry to think like a paramedic, but I'm still working on the street and I still, I, my, my, my risk stratification strategy is I want to figure out who's sick and who's not sick, right? So uh, I don't like the scale to decide I'm not going to transport to the hospital. I like the scale in order to say, this one's at higher risk of, of complications and that definitely is going to get admitted and definitely needs to go and go now, right? Because these were all 21-year-olds that were completely hemodynamically stable with normal vital signs and no STEMI on the EKG. So, um, so when you're saying uh, golf scores lower is better, it's better for the patient. I feel like yeah. it's, it's worse for the paramedic, though. The lower the score, the more... The more I feel I'm gray, you know, like I've got no, I've got no, the stratification isn't going to help me. But the higher the number, the more I think, 
wow, there are so many risk factors. We're in a high risk zone. Now that higher number is very, very important to me, which really comes back to uh, exactly what Remley uh, just said. And, and that is, I, I just love the, the it, 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 when I train paramedic students, I'm telling them, don't ever think that because you press on the chest and they say, ow, that's a patient that can stay home. Like you can't decide that somebody's not having an MI because you take a deep breath and oh, you know, it got worse with inspiration. That that means you don't have to take him to the hospital. But but this plus minus thing goes, oh, yeah, that that you know, you got you got some minus four there if if you uh if if it you know you 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 I got better with inspiration or got or changed with inspiration. So I do feel like it can it can it can fluctuate, but this tool, in terms of being kind of a rule in rule out, is more of a uh, let's see how dangerous uh, and uh, and the higher the number, the dangerous uh, for us uh, and for the patient. Just wanted to uh, put my paramedic brain on there and go ooh. And I also want to mention to the audience because. Um, I see no uh, no comments in the chat, and we've got a ton of people on this on this line. Uh, please, you know, speak up. We want to hear your comments. And there's a Q and A, and so uh, please jump in there too. Okay, I'm on. Okay, well, thanks, Dave. And that's that's a those are some great comments. Um, yeah, we, we, when I said it was better, I was absolutely talking about the patient, but that does uh, lead some some ambiguity for the providers. Um, so let's we'll jump back into the study and some of the methods here. So they were uh, this was interesting because this is another one and we're seeing more of these where patients were were entered into the study under a waiver of informed consent. Um, so that's that was uh, one of the more interesting parts of the study. That was over an eight and a half month period. We talked about April two from 2018 to January of 2019. So in order to be enrolled in the study. You had to be at least 21 years old. You had to have uh, acute non-traumatic chest pain um, without signs of a STEMI uh, or unstable vital signs. And they defined unstable vital signs as a systolic blood pressure of less than 90, a heart rate greater than 120, or of less than 40. An uh, O2 sat of less than 90 on room air uh, or normal home oxygen flow rates. Um, they were all transported by ground EMS to one single large community uh, medical center uh, emergency department. So these, and again, they were from two counties uh, in North Carolina, one larger and one smaller. So once they they enrolled these patients into the study, they, um, they collected their data and using uh, an EHR and they had, they had linked uh, patient outcomes. And they were, they compare, they did some good comparisons here because not everybody had complete data. And we'll talk about this when we get to, um, when we get to the results section, but they used descriptive statistics where they, um, they used some statistical tests to see if there were differences in just baseline characteristics between patients who did and who didn't um, meet any of the, the criteria for uh, chest pain or PE. And also importantly, they compared the difference between patients who had complete data and patients who didn't have complete data to uh, see if there were any any limitations and how well these the, these data could be generalized to the rest of the population. 
We are going to have to talk a little bit about um, some statistics here to understand some of these results. And we're going to try and do this in as friendly a way possible. But one of the one of the things, the way that they interpreted these data, the way that they assessed these data was they they calculated a sensitivity and specificity, which we've talked about before um, on this podcast, um, but some very related, closely related statistics that I don't think that we've talked about as in depth um, are positive predictive values and negative predictive values, uh, as well as likelihood ratios. Uh, they have a negative likelihood ratio and a positive likelihood ratio. Uh, and they looked at 30 day outcomes um, based on these ratios. And uh, Remley, Dr. Crow, if you can come on and um, give us a, a little help in uh, understanding kind of what these these statistics are, and more importantly, because uh, we we're not in this podcast, we're not trying to make anyone a statistician, but we certainly want to help you interpret these results. Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes, especially when we're talking about test characteristics, the terms can sound confusing or you know, overwhelming, and, and our tendency might be to skim over them, but when you break it down, they're actually simple in terms of what aspect we're looking at. And some are more useful for clinical prediction than others, while some are really useful for research. So I thought it would be helpful if before we dove right into the results that we just did a quick primer on what test diagnostic test characteristics are, especially the ones that are applicable to this research project. So in epidemiology, we often see these two by two contingency tables, they're called, where you have patients who either have the disease or don't have the disease, and then you have a positive or a negative test result. And so when we're talking about sensitivity, you're looking at the population of patients who have the disease. And then you're saying, of those who have the disease, what percent tested positive? And specificity is specificity, that's easy to say, is just the converse. So among all the patients who don't have the disease, what percent tests negative? But sometimes that, that's not as useful at the clinical curbside, if you will, or at the bedside, because that, that depends on the patient either having or not having the disease. What we have when we're practicing is a positive or a negative test result. And we need to decide what to do with that positive or negative test result. And so when we talk about positive predictive value, that's just flipping this table, looking at all of the patients who test positive, how likely is it that they really have the disease? Negative predictive value is just the opposite of that. If I have a negative test result in my hand, what's the probability that that patient really doesn't have the disease? And then the last two aspects, which are really emphasized in this study, are the positive likelihood ratio and the negative likelihood ratio. And those combine sensitivity and specificity in a way that can sound confusing, but we'll break it down and talk about what is the real interpretation, and then we'll do even a bottom line on just, if you only need to know two things about this, here's what you need to know. So a positive likelihood ratio is technically sensitivity over one minus specificity. That's super confusing, but it might make more sense to hear it as true positive. So a patient who really has the disease and tests positive over false positives, a patient who doesn't have the disease and tests positive. And so what this breaks down to in an interpretation is what's the probability of a positive test result in somebody who has the disease compared to a positive test result in somebody who doesn't have the disease? What this means overall, so this is the, the piece where the interpretation becomes really easy, is a high positive likelihood ratio is a good thing. That means that somebody who has the disease is likely to test positive compared to somebody who doesn't. So when we're talking about high positive likelihood ratios, 
greater than one is positive, but when we're deciding whether or not we should rule in a disease, we're often looking for a likelihood positive ratio of greater than 10. So keep that in mind. I love it. Thank you. Um, And, and um, for, for, for my pea brain, um, I, I won't even call it a paramedic brain because they have way more better brains, those other paramedics than this paramedic. I, I often think of it and check me if I'm right, Dr. Crow, if I, if I think of specificity, I think I just did a 12 lead on a STEMI and it, it showed me a STEMI and that is highly specific. And it is, if it calls it, it calls it, it's it, that's it. That's, you know, that's a STEMI. Um, the likelihood that it's wrong is so small. Yeah, I have to look at it, but it's it's gonna be what it is. And it's not real sensitive. Like there's people having heart attacks and STEMIs, but they just don't show up yet, right? It's a little bit like a pregnancy test. If the pre- if the pregnancy test is positive, it's like, whoa, it's very likely that you're pregnant. But if it's not, it could be that it's just not showing up yet. And so that's the sort of specificity of if it's specific and it's calling it, I can be confident that it's calling it because they have a high positive predictive value. But if but if it's not, then that negative predictive value is really uh, useless to me in the field because uh, they still could be having. Is that a good way to think about it? That is a good way to think about it. And so it all comes down to putting the whole story together and what do you need to value the most? And that depends a lot on the resources available. So if you're really worried about catching all of the patients who have this disease, you want a high sensitivity. You want to grab them all. But if you really want to be sure that, hey, this patient isn't having the problem, if I'm going to decide to transport to a different destination or not fly, for instance, and I want to be really sure that it has high specificity. And the thing about sensitivity and specificity is that there's a trade-off. As sensitivity goes up, specificity goes down, and those two curves will intersect, and that's generally at the point where we say that's the cutoff. And this is all, you know, might sound overwhelming or I could never understand that. But as you start to apply it and start to see these tests, it becomes more and more clear. And I'm not going to tell you that this is something I have perfectly memorized in my head every time, but I know how to go look it up. And that's the really important piece of this. And, and I think exactly that intersection is where, where we live in the field. If you activate a cath lab every time you have someone with chest pain, you will catch 100% of the people <laughs> who are having a STEMI, okay? But you'll send a lot of people bills they don't need. And you will be fired because that activation is like $20,000 per uh, activation or probably 10 times more. Now I'm maybe dating myself and, and everybody going into the OR thinking that they have, you know, major surgery. If they get in in a car crash, you'll, you'll catch every possible spleen that's ruptured, but you'll also send a lot of healthy people into the, into the operating room. So um, so it, there is that sort of sensitivity thing that is like, uh, how sensitive of a test do you want to have? And if it's, if it's going to, if you cast the wide, the net wide, you'll catch everything, but at the same time, you'll be catching a lot of stuff that isn't, isn't what you were looking for. So I, I, I like the way that, uh, you explained it. And I, and in, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, well, I just really want 
a test that's very specific. And the higher sensitivity is great, but but don't give me a, a, a positive uh, if unless it's really positive because I just don't want to have egg on my face. I also don't want all my patients to die either. So sensitivity is important to me. Um, but my gut is kind of kicking in on the sensitivity side. Absolutely. And, and so again, it really depends on the resources that are available in your system, which one you need to optimize. But it's good to know that depending on where you move the cut point, you'll change sensitivity and specificity. But again, those tests are not so useful at curbside. Really, this positive likelihood ratio and negative likelihood ratio are helpful for understanding how well a screening instrument is able to distinguish who's having the disease versus who's not having the disease or the outcome of interest. And so for positive likelihood ratio, higher is better, higher than 10 is important. Negative likelihood ratio, again, sounds scary. It's got one minus sensitivity over specificity, but that's just your false negatives. So people who really do have the disease who test negative over true negatives, people who don't have the disease who test negative. Um, another way of looking at this, some people learn in math, some people learn in words, probability of a negative test result for somebody who has the disease, that's your false negative versus somebody without. The thing to take away here, that bottom line, if you will, is that in a negative likelihood ratio, you want it to be less than one. The lowest it can go is zero because this is a ratio, but you want it to be less than one and to be a useful instrument for ruling out, you actually want it to be less than 0.1. Uh, so higher than 10 on that positive likelihood ratio and less than 0.1 on the negative are your key takeaways if you're reading a study and thinking, should I exclusively rely on this instrument? And the last thing I'll say before we really dive into the results is just because it doesn't meet these criteria doesn't mean that a test is completely useless. It just means that we might want to think twice about using it in isolation or think about what parts are the most predictive, what parts might be the most useful in adding to our clinical judgment. Uh, and so with that, I'll turn it back for any panelist questions or audience questions that we might have. Let me check the chat. All right. And if there are none, we're gonna invite Jeff Rollman to come back with us and we can start diving into what the authors actually found. Jeff, welcome. Oh. Thank you. And thanks for that excellent review of likelihood ratios. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of numbers that are thrown out here and the readers um, and myself, I'm thinking, where should I focus my energies on? What's most useful as a paramedic in the field? And definitely agree that that likelihood ratio, uh, looking for that large uh, positive likelihood ratio or very small negative likelihood ratio is a great place to start in terms of the results. So moving along, um, I know these authors did a great job um, testing all these different scores and collecting data in North Carolina. So how did they do? So in those two systems, uh, during that time period, there were a total of 837 patients who were enrolled and met that criteria, um, who did have complaints of non-traumatic chest pain and about just over four out of five. So 82% of those did have all four of those risk scores completed. So we know that just because you're supposed to do something doesn't always happen. So some of those patients didn't get all those scores or any of them done. So those are a little harder to understand. And then of those 82% of chest pain patients, we saw that 30% of them had a 
major event, so a major adverse cardiac event or PE, uh, just over 8% of them did. And 90, almost 92% of them did not have one of these major events, one of these major cardiac events. And then going back into that 30-day window of patients who after admission to the ED, uh, we're looking to see whether they had something like MI or PE within 30 days of admission. Most of those had a cardiac event, about 90% of those, whereas about 10% had a PE. So the study flow diagram is just a really nice way for us to see of all those patients who met that initial criteria as 21 plus chest pain patients who had relatively stable vitals. And this is an important point for us to pause as the reader as well and say, well, how many events did they have in the study? Because that'll give me some confidence into how much variation is there going to be in the estimates. So for you know, any major cardiac event, we see that there were 50 patients total. So not just looking at the percentage, but thinking about the end, we have 50 patients with that event, but only six who have the pulmonary embolism. And so the, and the authors describe this really well in their results and their limitations around, we might need a longer study period or to add more agencies to get more certainty in our estimates for pulmonary embolism in particular. But that's something that really catches my eye Along with the other thing that you focused on that I thought was really important is, what about the patients who didn't have a risk score completed? Was there something about them that was different? Were they perhaps sicker and the, the paramedic didn't have time to take all of these scores? Or did they look less sick and the, the paramedic didn't think that all the scores were necessary? Uh, but you know that is something that I immediately take a quick look at. And Jeff, perhaps you want to talk about what the authors did with regards to those patients who did not have all four risk scores completed. Sure. Yeah. So first off, who were these patients? We're kind of curious who these patients were who didn't have all four of those risk scores completed. And the, the authors did have patient demographics, of course, on all of these. So they're actually able, able to determine that these patients were much more likely to be younger, as well as more likely to be female, and they had lower rates of comorbidities like hypertension, high cholesterol, and prior um, coronary artery disease. So, so that kind of supports the hypothesis of, I see a patient who I don't think is as sick, who I don't think is as likely to be having one of these cardiac events. So either I'm not going to delay for the documentation, or I just didn't feel that it was necessary to complete all four scales. Exactly. And then I do want to point out, though, going back to that table again, that this is only a subset of all the patients. So I'm not quite sure the exact numbers, but anyone who was classified as having unstable vitals, so at any point in time, their systolic blood pressure was less than 90, heart rate greater than 120, or less than 40, and oxygen sats of less than 90%, they were automatically excluded. So if we think of pretty sick chest pain patients who maybe this uh, score could have been very helpful, those patients were excluded. All these patients had to have had non-traumatic chest pain and be 21 plus, but they couldn't be so unstable potentially from the chest pain that they were severely hypotensive or tachycardic or bradycardic or hypoxic. Absolutely. And I think that's a key point. And this goes on to one of Dave's earlier comments that I thought was helpful is when we have something like an unstable vital sign or a positive EKG, 
it's really obvious to me what I need to do. But what the authors really wanted to explore in this study was, well, what about that gray area where we have a patient who might be sick or might not be sick? Is there a tool that can help me make a more informed decision, especially when it comes to if I'm going to have to pick a different destination than I otherwise would? Exactly. Let's take a look at who was included in the study. Yeah. So here, the authors did a great job in table one, breaking out the total number of patients who we did have all those scores on. So the 687, the 80% of them, and then we look at those who had the MACE. So about 8% with MACE or PE and those without on the right. And then we have the P values. We could see that definitely the patients who are who had MACE or PE, who had one of those cardiac events, are more likely to be older. So that uh, age difference is on average about nine years older, and then also less likely to be female. But the other ones are not um, significant. I mean, again, this population had it been larger, some of these differences probably would have been a bit more significant, but I was definitely a bit surprised. I thought some of these risk factors, you would think things like smoking, hypertension, diabetes, that there would be huge differences. And yes, there definitely were some differences, but even in a pretty large population of, um, you know, almost 700, there still wasn't a significant difference. So again, probably would see that in a bigger population, but I was definitely surprised by those risk factors all being pretty much non-significant. That was surprising to me as well. I expected to see more risk factors in the patients who had the cardiac event or the PE. Uh, but one of the things that I think about when I look at this is, well, how were those risk factors derived? Were they pulled from the medical record or the pre-hospital medical record or a combination of both? And then if this was an index event, meaning you know, the patient's first encounter at an emergency department with this kind of condition, and they actually had that event, would they have been as able to get a full medical history? And so perhaps some of this is related to data that just weren't able to be collected at the time of the encounter. But I totally agree with you. In a bigger population, we might expect to see a difference that's more pronounced between patients who have an uh, and um, not favorable outcome versus patients who do, or patients who have these cardiac events versus patients who don't. Yeah, I wanna I wanna just make sure <clears throat> that that I'm uh, you know catching what you're putting down here, and that is that none of these risk factors really actually are going to help me in the street making a decision. Um, so it doesn't matter if they tell me they were a smoker or not. It doesn't matter if they were they have high cholesterol or hypertension. Uh, in this case, if they're completely stable, that was not something that was helpful. That, I'm not that sure is that what that's you're true. No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Okay. Uh, in the heart score, for instance, history is one of those things that makes the score go up, meaning that they're more likely to have a bad event. Uh, what I'm thinking is that how and when do these data get collected? And so in this study, I think they were pulling it from the hospital electronic health record. And so if it is the patient's index visit for something like this, they might not have all of their medical history on file already. And then interviewing a patient who's having an event like this, you may not be able to get their full medical history. So my hypothesis, and again, this is completely outside of the paper, but just based on field experience is that maybe they weren't able to get as complete past medical information on patients with events. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I ask patients are you a smoker? And they say no, but they've been smoking for the last 30 years. They just quit yesterday kind of story. 
Accuracy of these so, data is a totally different story. <laughs> um, so, so uh, I can't wait for you to do the next table so that I can really dive in. So I'm, I'm just going <laughs> to shut up because I guess because it, it, you know, I think there's some of these pieces that are way more predictive. So I'll shut up. No, and I, I think it's an important thing for us to think about. And then the the bias that Dave just mentioned, that social desirability bias certainly comes into play. So thinking about how and when data get collected could always be an important thing to consider as we look at results of a study. So I, I know that Dave is anxious and probably Jeff is too. Do you want to move into table two? Sure, let's do it. All right. This is like the drum roll moment, I think. Drum roll, please. <laughs> here we are. What do we see? So here we have each of our scores on the left are here, our EDACs, our PERC, and the RGS. Um, the first three scores are for the MACE, the major adverse cardiac event, and the last one is for pulmonary embolisms, the RGS. And we can look at our sensitivity at first, and we see our sensitivity, meaning the ability of this test, of this score, of this decision aid to correctly identify of those um, uh, patients that are positive, that they also have a positive score. And we could see a sensitivity is relatively high for here, uh, not as high for EDACs and PERC and RGS. It is very sensitive. So it's catching as a high risk 100% of the patients who score as high risk for PERC or RGS. But then when we look at specificity on the other hand, and that's our ability to correctly identify somebody as not being, um, not having a major adverse cardiac event or PE, we see that that specificity is much lower for all these, particularly for that here. So like comparing here and EDACs, here seems to do a better job of maybe having a wider bucket. So it's more sensitive than EDACs, but at the same time, because it has a wider bucket, we have many more patients um, that are ending up with a false negative as compared to the EDAC score. Yeah, so in a pragmatic sense, I care, EDACs is my tool. Like it, when it, when it is specific at 79.9%, it means that that thing is 80% accurate at saying these patients are going to end up badly. They're going to have a problem. Uh, you better pay attention to these. And it, correct me if I'm wrong, please, please, please. So EDACs is more about, in general, assessment. It's really diaphoresis, pain radiating to the arm or shoulder. I mean, these are the, the two scores that drive it way up other than age and sex. Yeah, known, you know, history is in there, but really it's symptomology. If they're diaphoretic, if it radiates, and if it's not, you know, uh, uh, reproducible by, by uh, palpation or worsened by inspiration. So, so it goes back to Gestalt. If, if I'm looking at a person who's sweaty over the age of 65, and um, actually, I'm just look real carefully here. Yeah, over the age of 61, even um, male, you know, sweaty male <laughs> with arm arm pain, uh, I, that is way more specific, and uh, and way more interesting to me than this here uh, uh, scale, which is really 
into the history and the risk factors and troponin, which I can't get right now, maybe in the future, like I will, but right now I can't. So an ST depression, which is really, you know, uh, nonspecific repole, uh, really uh, here is, you know, uh, not not super helpful because it's casting way too uh, broad of a, of a net and catching all sorts of stuff that isn't interesting to me. So EDAX is 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 looking to me like where it's at. Am I reading that right? I think you are reading it right, but the where it's at part is where I hesitate a little bit. None right. of these instruments has strong enough positive likelihood ratio or negative likelihood ratio that I would rely on this alone. There's okay. probably other information I should be considering. Um, but if I'm on the edge and this is, you know, one extra tool in my toolbox to help me make that decision, it could be a useful tool. It does outperform the other instruments in terms of what we're most concerned about, which is let's make sure that if we call it a no, it's really a no. Um, but you can see that the positive likelihood ratio is about a 2.5, which again, we're looking for like a 10 or higher if we want to use something for a rule in. And then negative likelihood ratio is a 0.6. And we really want to be below 0.1 if we're going to use it for rule out. So yeah, so none of these, yeah. yeah, none of these are no's. Like you can't, you cannot, um, with a patient with chest pain, there you cannot say, oh, for sure you can stay home. Because none of them are no. None of them get to get you to a comfort level of nothing will happen. Exactly. And, and Rick has a great comment here in the chat as well as this is an and this is okay, I'm going to build my index of suspicion with here for heart minus the T. And I'm going to keep building this maybe I add edX on top of it. Um, can I use these tools in combination? It's almost like I paid him to ask this question because the next table puts the tools together just like that. <laughs> so really excellent observation. And, and we can take a look at that too. So we've looked at these that uh, and Daniel had the same thought. What about combined use? I, I want to use one of these plus the other. One's more sensitive, one's more specific. But what happens when we stick them all together? Um, so Jeff, perhaps you could walk us through, you know, what your key takeaways were from table three, which is where they combine decision A's. They put together here plus PERC, here plus RGS, EDAX plus PERC. Um, the combo that's missing, which Daniel and, and uh, both Daniel and Rick kind of hinted at is, well, what if I put two of the heart scores together, if I put here plus EDAX. Um, there are supplementary materials to look at, but also there's some redundant information. So we want to be a little bit careful about that. But this is, if I'm looking for major cardiac events plus pulmonary embolism, maybe I want to combine one of each of these scales. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the authors did a great job in adding both these together. And we could see clearly that that sensitivity goes up with each of these, that when we add even more questions, more things to think about, it's going to raise our index of suspicion. So we'll be more sensitive and we'll have kind of a wider bucket, more patients to include. So that makes sense that our sensitivity is going up. But at the same time, our specificity goes down because now we have even more patients that we are considering and potentially um, classifying as higher risk that don't truly end up having a um, major cardiac event or PE. And we also see this same thing with the positive predictive value and the negative predictive value. 
So the PPV goes down a bit, just looking at here in EDAC, each of them were in the teens. And now we see that only about 10% of patients that are positive um, end up actually having one of these adverse events. So the vast majority of them were kind of scaring them maybe and telling and thinking that they may have a cardiac event or PE, whereas they don't. But our negative predictive value is quite high when we combine all of these. So we can be fairly confident um, that these patients, if they, when we take two tests together, if they're negative, low risk for both of these, then pretty decent chance that they probably won't have a 30-day MACE or PE. But still those positive likelihood ratios and negative likelihood ratios, we're still looking for greater than 10 or negative or or um, less than 0.1 for the negative likelihood ratio that we're not quite there. So we're definitely a bit better, I would say, when we combine two of these tests together, but there's still more to be desired. And I still wouldn't just be using these tests alone to say, hey, you're having chest pain, but you don't need to go to the ER, you could just stay at home. Uh, I, I'd love to have a medical director on here who's thinking about their their license uh, and, and, a, and a paramedic who says, you know, your negative predictive value here, your, your NPV was in the 97.8 highest if I used here and PERC together. So therefore, I'm pretty good with you just kind of driving yourself over to the clinic and getting this checked out, you know, when you when at your own leisure. So I love that we get up to these 97.8 and, you know, it, it's like, it, but it, it, it feels like we're thinking like an ER doc in a, uh, in a situation where they're going to like admit or not admit when they have a lot more tests that they're able to do and a lot more time to do those in a five to 10 minute assessment with limited ability. We're kind of going, are you going, are you not going? What am I going to do with you? I, I do uh, think uh, and if I had the authors on, I would I would really press. I don't understand why you include PE and MI, right? Because there there are two different mechanisms going on, and not other things like AAA. So there's other things that chest pain could be, and they chose two complications that are a different pathophys. And now they're combining these two, and you can see the specificity goes from 80% for, for EDACs in particular, 80% to 50% as soon as you start talking about PE. Because the PE one, I have to even look up what the Geneva score for pulmonary embolus is, the GPS. And, and I'm like, or yeah, G, G, RGS, the revised Geneva score. Um, and the revised Geneva score when you look at it is really about, well, did you have a DVT and does the limb hurt? And I get that. I'm like, yeah, that would make me think you've had it before, your limb hurts, you've had surgery. That's a rule in a, a, a PE until you can actually, you know, we gotta, we gotta like make sure you're 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 seen for that. So it brings down the ability for the EDACs to really kind of predict something. So my takeaway is. Go back to table two, EDAX is at 80% specific. And I take away from that an older male with uh, diaphoresis, 
um, and and uh, referred pain and no reproduction on palpation is a is an eighty percent. There's going to be a problem, and and that that to me is very useful for this study. Uh, I, I you know I'm, I appreciate six hundred eighty seven patients were 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 really carefully analyzed. So uh, it does help me stratify this risk, but not I don't think in the way that they were thinking. Um, and that's probably why you read the full paper. You don't just look at the abstract. It's like watching the trailer of the movie. Um, and then you go watch the movie and you go, whoa, there's a lot more to this. Uh, you know, maybe that's why Barbie is making so much money right now is because there's a lot more to this than what, you know, the, the general, uh, you know, trailer of the movie is about. So, uh, I'm, I, am I, am I reading that right? I mean, we went from EDAX being 80% specific to about 50 when you start messing around with a PE conversation. Yeah, and, and I think that goes to thinking about what the tool was designed to detect. And we do this in stroke screening too. When we're thinking about ischemic stroke, a lot of the stroke scales perform really well, but then if you add in intracranial hemorrhage, which the tools were not designed to detect, uh, then sensitivity and specificity change pretty drastically. So with this tool, two were designed specifically to look for PE and they perform really well. Actually, we can see that they have 100% uh, sensitivity for finding PE, and that's the PERC and the RGS, but that's what they were designed to do. Uh, so when we make these composite outcomes, we have to be really careful. And I think that was just a test that these authors were running. They're not saying we should go do these things in, in combination, but the question was, well, what if we put them together? One more thing to pay really close attention to in the measure definition is when were these data collected or how long was the collection period? So this was at 30 days. Uh, pulmonary embolism could happen after a patient has been in bed for many days um, that really doesn't have as much to do with what was happening during the pre-hospital encounter. So that's another thing for us to think about is what was the endpoint and is that endpoint likely to be representative of what I'm seeing in the pre-hospital setting? Um, and I think the authors did a very good job at describing a balanced conversation around this in the, in the limitations, but then you know, we're in our last five minutes and I have that unpopular task of wrapping us up, but what my mind goes to is, okay, well, what do I do with this information now? And I think like many good research papers, this paper tells us, hey, there's something worth digging into here, but we need to do more research, particularly around are there some signs and symptoms in the pre-hospital environment that we should be adding in to get a more robust screening instrument? Dave's comment about keeping the outcome separate and considering other time-sensitive outcomes as well is also a really important consideration. Uh, so I'll open it up in the last five minutes if any of our panelists have any final thoughts that they would like us to take away and any last moment audience questions, we'll be happy to bring those into the discussion before I send us off. Uh, before I'll 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 amend my statement about AAA <laughs> and chest pain just because I, I I was thinking of thoracic aneurysms and just misspoke. But um, but I I will say um, uh, you know trust your gut here. If anything, it's great to put numbers to scales, and um, I just want to leave with you know we just we just have numeric scientific confirmation that patients with diaphoresis um uh, pain radiating no change in inspiration and no no change in palpation are people that you think uh you know really need to be seen 
and uh, especially older males. But um, I would also say we miss a lot of uh, cardiac patients, particularly women, because we some of these scales are weighted towards men in particular. So uh, with a kind of a, a DEI lens to this, I would say careful to just assume that it's mostly males having heart attacks here. Uh, and and I, I'm going to really separate out the PE to say, um, uh, danger, danger, Will Robinson, and, and let's do more science, just like Dr. Gersh said. I like that you picked out that, that you know, the DEI lens, I think it's important. And the reason that these scales more heavily weight men is not because, oh, well, we're sexist and, and men, you know, get a higher point. It was based on lots and lots of literature, like the Framingham Heart Study, where men had more risk factors. But as diets are changing, as culture is changing, this is something that we should continuously update our knowledge on and see our risk factors changing in our population. And should we be weighting these differently than we did perhaps 10 or 20 years ago? So that's a really great uh, call out. Uh, any last comments from Tony or Jeff before I take our last audience comments? No, I think this is a really interesting study. Um, I, I'm glad that the authors were able to get this published so we can you know, try and put a different lens on some of the metrics that we should and shouldn't be using in the pre-hospital environment. Yeah, agreed. I think this is an excellent study. And then my comment also addresses what Ethan and Rick just brought up about the utility of um, these metrics and using them in our assessment and differentiation. I would say it almost goes back to our table one, where we saw these risk factors and hey, no big difference no difference between risk factors. But then looking at these scores more in depth and seeing a lot of these are focused on really getting a thorough history and understanding what risk factors our patients have. So I think a big takeaway is just continuing to use our skills, even though we maybe can't do pre-hospital troponins, we absolutely can do very thorough assessments, ask all those important questions about potential risk factors, history, various symptoms. And I think this is just additional evidence that we as EMS providers need to keep on doing our job, especially with these patients. It's not a matter of telling them, you're fine, you could stay at home. It's drilling down and figure out, figuring out what pieces of their history and risk factors are most concerning. Yeah, I, I want to address Ethan's co comment here. Uh, I don't, I personally, I would not print and put these in ambulances. Um, not with this evidence. What I would say is um, we have previous evidence on non-transports that chest pain is a high risk non-transport. So in all circumstances, chest pain becomes high risk and should be transported. Now, hemodynamically stable patients with chest pain are likely to have bad outcomes and, and problems when they present with that EDAX, uh, you know, higher score. And that doesn't, that's not necessarily that they're going to do it right, right then. So I, in my mind, what this does is help us zone in just like, you know, when you have a STEMI and you think, okay, aspirin, uh, 12 lead and cath lab, nitro and, and pain relief and all that were important, but you start to kind of muddy the waters when you, you when you make checklists that are, that are too long, a, do aviation style, this really matters. So if they're diaphoretic and, and 
uh, they have pain radiating and you can't reproduce it by palpation. This is this is a moment and that's simplifying. That's EDAC simplified, I guess. Absolutely. And I, I, you know, to build off of Ethan and Rick's comments, which are, you know, should we print these and use them in ambulances or, you know, these tools may be good, but I'm not using them for non-transport decision. I agree with both of those. I think what the authors have shown us with the data here is that these instruments are really useful as a guide or a memory aid, particularly for something that we might not see all that frequently as an individual EMS clinician, uh, but not to be used, used as a rule. Uh, there's a lot more further research that needs to be done. So wouldn't rely on any one of these in isolation. I do want to thank again the audience for all of your participation as well as the authors for the work that they took on. This was a prospective study. It was a ton of work, a ton of data collection, and really well done. Uh, and now I unfortunately have the unpopular task of sending us off, but I want to remind you before we go, we're going to be back here with the Education Research Journal Club podcast Friday, August 25th, and then we will be back here with our clinical podcast second Monday of the month which will be September 11th. Thank you all again for listening. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey. And ESO, dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data.